0: This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Hello and welcome
1: to another Cheerful Book Club. Uh, Ed, who do we have with us today? We have the brilliant... Inspiring, extraordinary
2: Melissa Ben, expert on education, novelist, and all-round
1: brilliant person. We go a bit giddy when you come in. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's so too. sweet, <laughs> and a bit maybe a bit naughty. <laughs> a there's, a bit, lo-
3: yeah.
2: there's a lot of laughing. There's a lot of laughing. <laughs> there's a lot of
3: laughing. <laughs> there's, a lot of there's, a, laughing. A,
2: there's a lot of laughing. Why don't you tell us about who, who we're going to be talking to?
3: Okay, so today we're going to be talking about this. You know, really interesting book, I think. Alex Beard, who was a young teacher who decided he wouldn't stay in the classroom, but he would find better ways of doing things. And his book, Natural Born Learners, Our Incredible Capacity to Learn and How We Can Harness It, which is about um, teaching and classrooms and knowledge and all those things. But is also about artificial intelligence and can computers override what humans do and and all that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it is it's it is a really interesting book and I'm glad we're going to be talking about it.
1: Before we carry on, can I just ask you to check that you subscribed to Cheerful Book Club on your podcast app? I know you're listening to it, but if you could just make sure you're subscribed as well, that's really helpful for us because we want as many people as possible to discover and join in with the book club. And the research shows That one of the main ways in which people find podcasts is by looking at the charts and the charts are very confusing it's not just how many people listen but it's this whole algorithm ed ed gets very perturbed about it i think he would like to see some kind of judge led inquiry into the podcast charts but it's it's an algorithm that takes into account subscriptions and then the other things actually are ratings and reviews so if you've got time to give us uh, you know a few stars lots of stars please and write something nice that would be hugely appreciated and also uh, follows on social media you can find us on twitter we are cheerful uh, facebook facebook.com stroke we are cheerful or we are cheerful uk on instagram you can find all those and uh, get in touch and let us know what you think about the episodes by going to our website which is cheerfulpodcast.com
0: cheerful book club talking to the writers exploring the biggest ideas of our time support for cheerful book club comes from vintage read boldly think differently Follow at Vintage Books for
1: more. And with us now is the author of Natural Born Learners, our incredible capacity to learn and how we can harness it. Uh, Alex Beard, hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for coming on. Um, and, and your background is as a teacher? Yes, exactly.
4: So almost 11 years ago to the day, I found myself pedalling down the Old Kent Road towards um, a secondary school uh, in South London, in and Castle, to start... A new job as an English teacher. Um, and there, I was quickly sort of disabused of my notions of what teaching was. I'd been to this lovely primary school in the countryside. And I went to a secondary school that even had its own pack of beagles. It had a pack of beagles, the secondary school I went to.
1: I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I, I could talk for half an hour about this. <laughs> like,
4: why did why did the school have a pack of beagles? I think that's the kind of, a few of the pupils that went there were into that kind of thing. And so they would go beagling every Wednesday afternoon. But Anyway, this school did was crazy we wore gowns it was kind of harry potterish you know so i had this idea that teaching was just standing in a classroom talking about ideas and then the kids would all do the work very easily but the school that i was teaching at was very very different to the schools i went to um and it wasn't really like you you see in the movies so the kids were a couple of years behind uh, where we hoped they might have been in their english uh, when they arrived at school about half of them one free school meals two-thirds of them spoke english as a second language um and I found myself struggling to begin with um they were clearly beginning to live in the future these kids they had smartphones they spent all night playing call of duty and yeah i thought the methods i was using as a teacher might have been familiar to socrates back in the agora (laughs) and and at the same time i was aware that you know, the world around us was changing really fast. It was being predicted that the jobs these kids were likely to do when they grew up were going to be automated by robots. Um, there were sort of these crises of well-being that we were reading about and, and, and creativity. Um, I knew that globalisation was increasing at pace. Climate change was a problem they were going to face. And it felt like if they were going to tackle those things and I was going to prepare them for the future, they needed something a bit better than a hapless teacher using an interactive whiteboard badly. And that's what kicked me off on this journey to write this book.
3: You're part of a cohort of talented, very well-educated young people who went through, I don't know if you went to Oxford or Cambridge, but a lot of people do, went through Teach First, go into sort of deprived secondary schools, see that we could say the Gove reforms have led to a very, it's very difficult for you to teach. And what you decide to do, because Teach First is about creating a new generation of leaders... People like you, people like Lucy Crean, who wrote the excellent book *Cleverlands*, you tend to sort of go off and go around the world and sort right. of look. And, and I just wondered if you sort of reflected on that. Do you think it was a, as well as it being a very creative journey, you set off on, it was also a kind of recognition of defeat about our own system. That's that's my question with the with the answer <laughs> built in.
4: Well, I think to some extent it was. So the two questions which. I didn't know the answer to while I was teaching, but really wanted to know the answer to, were what it is that we should be learning today, because it didn't quite seem right what we were teaching. And secondly, what we're capable of learning, just what these kids in my classroom were capable of. And then that imposes a third question, which is, and then how do you set up the systems mm-hmm. and schools and careers for teachers that are going to enable all kids to learn what we'd want them to? Um, and I think that it was it was driven by a recognition that I had failed the students that I taught So we succeeded on our own terms. I was so focused on helping them to get their GCSE grades. And they did all do well. The the kids all got the C grades or above that they needed at GCSE. But on reflection, I know that, you know, a year or two later, the kinds of things that they were probably doing in my classroom weren't likely to be sustained into their futures. And I think that when I was a teacher, I wasn't thinking about what can I do to ensure that these kids thrive throughout their lives? I was thinking, how can I help them to get that GCSE in two years' time? And that was one of the things I wanted to go in search of. How are people doing this differently around the world?
3: Yeah, yeah. No, you're quite harsh on yourself and kinder on the system. That's my point. You make it all a personal uh, lack. When obviously, you were a pretty good teacher, but the system... Constrained you. That's, that's my reading of the beginning of the book. Anyway,
2: yeah, I think that's right. It'd be yeah. quite helpful, I think, for our listeners if you said what your central thesis of the book was. Obviously, natural born learners is
4: the title. So do you yes. want to just say a little bit about what your central argument is. Certainly. So the central thesis of the book is that we all have a much greater capacity for learning than we realize, or is being realized by our education systems today. I mean, in the UK today. It's quite shocking, only half of kids approximately get good passes at GCSE, including both English and Math. And I think, you know, 95, 99% of kids could be achieving that with the right support from the beginning of their lives. The World Bank says there are 800 million children around the world who are not on course to learn what they need to today. Um, so we do, to some extent, have a crisis um, of education. And my thesis is that we need to... Think carefully about what we should learn. And I think those three things that we should be thinking about are thinking anew, um, about the knowledge, um, that we need to have in our curriculum, but also the way that knowledge can lead to us becoming critical thinkers. Um, that also involves us thinking differently about AI and the role that might play in the future of human intelligence. Secondly, we. I say that we need to do better, which means recognising that creativity needs to be one of the ends of education. Um, And that both means within any subject that you might do. It also means learning to use the tools of today. It means also embracing this idea of lifelong learning. Um, And then finally, that we need to take care which broadly means that our schools should be engines of social cohesion. We should be worried about increasing the well-being um, of all school students as well. And I think we can achieve those things.
3: But the the, the thing you do in the book is that you you, you interleave those ideas with going to actual places that are doing... Um, exciting experimental things could you tell us about two that are that are quite different because you you take us to the korean system which is fantastically punishing you take us to finland you take us to various places in america so could you pick out two that you think illustrated
4: so yeah in order to find out what our brains are capable of i went to South Korea, which for many years has come top of or in the top few of the PISA school rankings, which are those tests that are given to 15 year olds all around the world every three years to find out who's got the smartest teens. And I ended up there on this Thursday morning, um, a few Novembers ago, standing outside this concrete school hall in a place called Songdo Future City on the outskirts of Seoul. And at that moment, across the country, hundreds of thousands of these Korean teens were sitting down to this gruelling exam that they call the Sunyung, and it takes place on a single day each year and is considered to be the world's toughest. And I was there to hear the story of this boy, Bin Lee. And at that moment on that Thursday morning, he was sitting inside this exam hall. He told me later, his hands shaking, about to get started. And the country was completely exam crazy. So... Earlier that morning, I had watched as police on motorbikes had lined the streets, um, getting ready to accompany any kids who were running late to get to the exam that hall. Sounds on ghastly. <laughs> it's ghastly. <laughs> and then they even, during the... That's not your model, just for you This, is not, my model. I'm sure listen this is not my model. Um, and then during the listening exam, um, that same day, they grounded all flights in the country. This happens every year. All flights in the country are grounded during English listening so as not to affect the kids' concentration with the sound of that a passing creepy, plane. Yeah. And um, and the system's all about these sort of strange kind of marginal gains. So this this boy Syung Bin Lee, he told me that he'd been worried about overheating during the exam and so halfway through he'd gone to the bathroom and removed his underpants because he'd sort of been told that like, wearing the I right clothing the was really important. You do, you do now I know why. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but but Korea's like it's a very extreme version of a of a certain education model which is yeah. very focused on one examination at the end has a, like a very strict and rigid curriculum, um, which is very, very closely designed. Every kid studies the same thing. You get a national rank after this exam, which says, you know, what university you go to, what job you do. So that's not the model. It's yeah, not the model, but it's, I think, a, a sort of a lesson for us in, in the UK that we could be heading in that direction if we become and continue yeah. to focus too much on exams. So what yeah. mean, that's the extreme version of us, is that that's, right? That's the extreme version of one trend that I yeah. see in the UK education system, yeah. Although there's,
3: you're kinder about it when you look at it in the English system. I mean, yeah, go, go yeah go on about the other model, which we want to hear about, the Finnish type that's model. That's in contrast. Yeah. But,
4: but, but that, you know, there is, I just wanted to say about that model, there's, there is some evidence uh, that it's important or it's helpful to learn knowledge in the way they do in South Korea. They do all this memorization yeah. and drilling and that should be a small aspect of our sort of bigger education picture because we know some stuff about how um, our memories now work and the importance of having some knowledge in your long-term memory to be able to think critically or be creative in the future. So there's, they're not doing everything wrong, but it, it is a pretty scary system. Um, on the other hand, I went to Finland to see how education could be an engine of social cohesion um, and that was... I think, the best place that I visited. Um, so we hear, I we
1: hear about Finland
4: all the time. Yes. Like, what, what, what is it about? You're getting an what, approving nod <laughs> from the list. So I, I went to visit the, the country's most famous teacher. <laughs> he was this guy, Pekka uh, Peora. Uh, and in his classroom, I, he had sort of set up these tables where kids were working in these groups of four. And he, he started his class with... Uh, this question that he posted to kids, and then he got them to kind of beam in answers using their laptops or what have you. Um, And they responded A, B, C, D, E. And then he put the answers in a bar chart on the whiteboard. And then he didn't tell them the answer. He got them to turn and talk to each other. They had to explain what answer they'd given, why they'd given it. And then they beamed them in for a second time. This bar chart had shifted. The kids had essentially taught each other. And he told me that as a teacher, he saw his job in the classroom um, as being one of giving kids the knowledge and skills and attitudes they need to learn things for themselves like he would give them all the materials that he would give them the tests the answers to the tests at the beginning of the year and then he would simply coach them individually and collectively on their abilities of perseverance and creativity and cooperation in teams um, and it was really beautiful to see and he told me I asked him oh what happens if kids fail or fall behind in your approach and he said oh what is this idea of falling behind we need to delete the idea of competition from education entirely and instead create environments where kids feel safe failing sort of continually in small ways that's how they learn there is a bit of a myth about finland that they don't do assessment um, or exams and it's not true they do lots of assessment but it's all done by teachers on a regular basis and it's not high stakes so kids don't get stressed out about it but they're keeping a very close eye um, on the students
3: so did you think it was a system that really could work Because i don't know if you're a parent but you know there's parents want various things from a system, Do you would, would you as a parent have been happy to put your child through the Finnish system?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I think parents in parents Finland are really happy with the Finnish system. Yeah, But it's based against a, yeah. a social compact which looks different to the one in the UK. Yeah. They genuinely have a shared responsibility between the teacher and the school and the child and the parent for the education of, of of the kid in the classroom. Um, and you can see it in some of the ways that they think about it. So still today in Finland, I met people in Helsinki whose five-year-old kids would get the train home alone from school across the city. Yeah. Um, and they would sort of go home, look after themselves for a few hours while their parents were still at work. I think they've worked for years to, to, to elevate the status of teaching there as well, in a way that's really important in the way that it's set up. So the Finnish teacher is seen almost as a hero. If you ask a, a Finnish person what their ideal husband or wife would be, in their top two professions for their husband or wife is primary school teacher. Well,
3: that is amazing. I mean, that's so different mm-hmm. to, to hear.
4: Yeah.
3: Another thing that struck me is that the, the Korean system and the Finnish system, which could not be more different in terms right. of competitive versus collaboration, both, if I'm right... Government and local government have shaped this system. Whereas when you go to America or you or you look at things that are happening here, it's all edupreneurs, you know. It's it's the the rollout of private interests in in public education. So that you, you don't interview I think I'm right, anybody who is an elected representative at, at, at any point in the book, I think,
4: but but Finland and
3: Korea are set up as sort of stable right. government systems. So th- there's a lesson there, isn't there?
4: There is. I think that's you know common to all of the, the highest performing education systems. You know we look at places like Ontario or Singapore, yeah. Shanghai, but Finland, New Zealand, even Estonia now is you know rising quickly as a place. And again, I think you're right. These all have a settled system of education which everybody has sort of agreed on as a society yeah. which looks the same more or less wherever you go in those places yeah. um, and fits and into
3: it's... their social contract which in career is highly highly competitive and in finland is a completely different kind of exactly yeah yeah
4: well, i think the ethos for an education system can't help but reflect the ethos of the society that it's in. And I think we tell ourselves a story in the UK of meritocracy and that we're, you know, we're all in it together, as you were. But it's really not the case when you sort of look closely at the schools. The schools very much serve the kind of replication of our current structures, our stratified social structures. So if you live in the right neighbourhood or you can afford a private school, you'll get a great-to-go education. It's still the greatest predictor of how you do at school is how much your parents earn. Yeah. Um, And our system at the moment isn't doing much to break that. Talk to us about, you
2: make the point in the book, and I think you made the point earlier on that if uh, this sort of ancient Greeks came and looked at our society, they'd think it was very different. But if they looked at education, they would think it wasn't. It wasn't that different. I mean, isn't there something here about school being? You know, kids have incredible creativity, incredible sort of hunger to do things and try new things, but school can be just very boring. I mean, isn't isn't that? I mean, I know that sounds a bit simplistic, but isn't I? I, I what struck me about your book is you go to this place. Is it called Forty Two? Yeah, it's in 42, That's right. Yeah, I mean, we talk to us a little bit yeah. about yeah. Forty Two, but it's not about it's not about um, kids, is it? It's about that's right. all, 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 that's all students, the students, yeah, sort of their eighteen, yeah, to thirty. But, but I just felt there's
4: something in that about learning you know, by yeah, doing. It's learning
3: by doing. There, isn't yeah. It? So
4: I think that yeah, school doesn't have to be miserable for kids. First of all, yeah um so some of the places that i went to 42 is a really good example there so it's this coding university on the outskirts of paris um it's got, with no teachers with no teachers there are no teachers no fees at all and you don't need any um qualifications to go there you start from scratch and the way you get in is through this big competition that they do online you do all this coding and then you get invited to the school for four weeks to do a coding marathon we sort of sleep on the floor but then you go in there and it's a thousand students all sitting in front of a gleaming iMac and their learning is monitored by this thing called the intra and they're, f- they're learning how to code basically um and it looks like this sort of you know a map for, from star trek or something and you start in the middle and as you unlock different levels you're going kind to of do new projects and move through it and the software forces the kids to collaborate with one another so it says oh, it knows who's on the floor and says okay you four are going to work together on this project right now you need to go over there and give feedback to someone on it and the kids are uh, Incredibly self-motivated and they're not really just learning to code. What they're doing is learning how to learn to code. Um, so they can go into their jobs in the future. And anytime a new language comes up or a new thing they need to master, they've spent three years at 42 learning how to be self-sufficient, learning how to go on YouTube and look, find the tutorial or Google the thing or ask a friend or read the manual. Um, and so they're equipped their whole career with this sort of meta skill of learning to learn
3: that's more like a sophisticated apprenticeship because it's late you start at 18 and so it's 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 not a
4: school-based thing but but there were school-based models that i saw so, so one of the schools that i really liked was a place called high tech high in san diego and there they've basically split education in half the kids spend half of their time doing what would look like quite normal schools to us english math science the other half of their time they spend on these big interdisciplinary projects mm-hmm. um, and these projects last the yeah. whole term. Yeah. And this one project that I saw, there were these kids who were 16 years old and it was a single class and they split themselves into three smaller groups. One group was um, experimenting with these biodegradable seed pods. Another group was uh, planning a documentary that they were going to produce. And another group was building their own drones from scratch. Mm-hmm. And they were going to end this class by taking a hike into the California wilderness, fly the drones over a national park. I mean, how
2: much more exciting is that? actually but why can't our
4: schools
3: but, actually I have, a, have that mix of the well, knowledge have, <laughs> curriculum? And,
2: that? No, and no. I have a specific sort of example of this, which is that in uh, just after I got elected as the MP in Doncaster North, I was at one of my local schools um the head teacher was a guy called Andy Sprakes and the bell went and he said that's uh, an industrial age school for the information age and I thought that's an odd thing <laughs> unusual thing for a head teacher <laughs> to say he now runs something called the XP oh, yes, school it's I've been there. It's fantastic uh, yeah. in
4: Doncaster which yeah. is based on project based learning yeah, yeah that's yeah. great um yeah. I now, went to visit and I think they've been they've visited High Tech High um XP so they're all part of this network called Big Picture Learning, and it's exactly focused on that. But I think, so we've got these
2: pockets of different practice, mm. but pockets kind of, you know, will help a few hundred kids so or a few thousand kids. How do you systematise this yes. in, in a way that sort of scales it up? And but Because otherwise you're in a sort of slightly Wild West sort yeah. of thing where some people are doing good things, right. some people are doing different, you know, and it's all
4: just a, a bit of a mess. Yeah. At the moment, the way we've structured the system, everything sort of comes down to the head teacher. Is the head teacher able to shield in a certain way? I think the teachers in the school from the pressures of the system, which is a terrible way I think to have a system set up. Um, I think we need to remove a lot of the pressures uh, pressures that come from the centre. Uh, you know, the GCSE exam as it currently exists, I think, completely it should be um, got rid of. Yeah, I think it should be got rid of. Yeah, I we well, Mike exam proposed that twenty years ago, and we yeah, can do yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That seems that seems a, an obvious thing to me. And then I think we also need to find a new way of structuring teacher careers and time teachers feel so put upon with bureaucracy planning marking Ofsted inspections and things but, but you can't
2: yeah. we're not but, but your proposal is not and I get, I'm not proposing this myself to sort of impose project-based learning on every school is it I mean how as well, I guess what sort of I'm mm. how do you have a system mm. that, is it is it that you give more autonomy to good head teachers locally is it what what's the sort of way in which you systematize this
3: yeah well I'd like to see some agreement that every school would provide this mix of well-anchored knowledge taught by subject experts i mean you talk quite mm-hmm. a lot about how we i mean we've just got everything wrong with teacher training in this Extreme. country i think yeah. we, we educate people for six weeks in the summer and then we don't give them any kind of chance to be natural born learners themselves that's right. you make that um but so to answer ed's question and i'm I think you agree every school should be a kind of high tech shouldn't it and it should have also this vocational element the sort of fun element the learning by doing that's right and then the the more traditional learning
4: And i think it's about learning i think but within the education system and- we should be the experts in learning people should want to know you know how do you become creative or how do you improve your performance how do you really get to know something inside out. And, and education, the sector should be seen as the source of all of that, but we're not currently. In fact, all of the learning structures in education uh, really don't work very well. Um, and I would target maybe teachers. I think, how can we re- restructure the teacher training or teacher career? There's this organisation I visited called Relay and they imagine a 10-year teacher training journey where you start out for for three years mastering the kind of core of the craft. Then you specialise in something. It might be creative learning. It might be your subject area. It might be tutoring and coaching. And then you go on to spend three years becoming a specialist in a certain area. And I think if you gave teachers the opportunity to be learners and to be craftspeople who think creativity is a big part of what they do every day then we could bring it in that way.
3: I want to bring something else about lifelong learning because so many people make the argument and you make it very well that with far too much concentration on school for a start. Yeah. Early years are absolutely vital and you talk about that classroom that you started out in and you say at a later point in the book the, one of the reasons there were a lot of difficulty in the classroom was because they a lot of those young people had not had sort of a good early years, creative, um, early years education in the broadest sense. And then also we can't say everything ends at 18 or 21, can we? I mean, even people who get the highest level education come out ignorant, needing to learn for the rest of their life. So these are two things that our system needs to put in place, which we have decimated. We've decimated further in adult education. And early years is patchy.
4: I totally agree with so all of those places like Finland, Estonia. One of the reasons they're so good is because of their good early childhood education. Kids don't start school proper until they're seven, but they have great... yeah. Um, kindergartens in those countries there's some amazing research which shows that about about learning to read and it connects to lifelong learning um so i think they did this study it was in new zealand children who'd started learning to read age four and age seven and by age 15 there's no difference in how good you are at reading, but if you start at age four, you're less likely to enjoy reading than if you started at age seven. And so you sort of put off this idea that that could be a source of learning for you. So interesting.
3: And you do mention in the book that early years is becoming more and more sort of pseudo-academic, so that Mm. You know, in some preschools, children are being sorted by ability and made to do things, and they are becoming phobic about the classroom. That's right, and and, and we, that that is definitely a way I we think don't we need a, to do. Our system go. at
4: the moment is really well set up to put kids off learning yeah. at the earliest possible stage, which is a big problem. Yeah, but then long term as well, I think we the world we live in now, there's never been a more important time for us to have ongoing adult education. Where you know, and I think it's it's narrow to think that's only to do with retraining for jobs because some are getting automated by oh, robots yeah. Yeah. i think there should be opportunities for people to pursue their interests you know to find an outlet for your own creative self-expression if you want to be part of a club um or you want to develop a new you want to learn a musical instrument why couldn't we all pursue an area of academic inquiry or something a particular subject i feel like we should have the institutions and maybe they could be based around schools imagine schools becoming more hubs for learning for whole communities rather than just students during school hours um i think that that would be an investment that would definitely pay we know education is the investment that always pays off um so it seems wrong-headed for us not to be doing that already yeah I'm I'm feeling rather encouraged by this conversation which I didn't expect to be. I don't
2: mean that I don't mean that with disrespect to your book because I liked your book. I but I sort of think I mean maybe we've got to the point where we sort of know enough. You know, it's not like it's an intractable problem maybe no, I think right. the concept of Brexit, but it's not an intractable <laughs>
4: insoluble problem. I don't think it is. I think you there are political issues that you need to overcome. I think building alignment would be the one, but I think that within the education system we know the answers. We know what good learning looks like, how it happens at the level of the teacher. We know what a good school looks like. We've got quite well shared ideas about what children should be learning today. I think we have quite shared opinions about the importance of early childhood education, lifelong learning. I think we need to find the money for it, but I think the plan is quite clear to people sounds, in the education system, right?
3: Yeah, it sounds like we need a national education service. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> no, But I mean, you do, you do, you do gracefully sidestep the question of education politics, and I know that's not your your um, your aim in this book. So you don't really look at segregation in our system, and you don't look at the at the political uh, sort of imperatives. But that that's where it all leads to, right. and and I'm encouraged as well that you think. Your your phrase just now. We share a lot of there's a lot of agreement on what we need to learn. I mean, I think the current education scene is a little bit more scratchy than that. I think you're you're obviously one of nature's optimists. But but my view is we could bring together people who seem to have very different views. The sort of Catherine Burbelsing yep. view with the Peter Hyman view, and I I'd like to see a political leaders bring those people right. together. And that's what I would do if I were in their position and say, let's kind of come up with a a common idea of what a school can do and try and implement it everywhere.
4: I think that'd be a great idea. I I love the idea of a sort of national education commission made up of a range of experts, including school leaders, potentially some parents, potentially some students as well, who are helping to shape. A shared vision that we commit to in the long term because that's one of the things education has always sort of moved from pillar to post um with the new education secretaries coming in and sort of wanting to make a splash at different times
2: we've we've hinted at it but should we talk a little bit before we finish about the state private divide in this country
4: um i think it is a real problem i think it comes down to um what we stand for as a country and like, what, we want, what do we want our education system to reflect that and if we want a country that stands for justice equality you know, for the chance of everybody getting on that's a kind and caring country, then we need a comprehensive system that has no private schools. Yeah. Um, Whereas if we want um, a system which, you know, where you can sort of buy an advantage, where if you are a member of the elite, you want to be able to fire your kids up the ladder to the top, then we would keep the system just as it is. And I personally would prefer that we live in the society of the first model of a comprehensive education system.
3: Well, good. I'll be calling on you, Alex, when, <laughs> when I'm running my various campaigns, because there's a huge amount of resistance to that.
4: Of course,
1: of
3: but,
1: course. yeah, yeah. So, so, Alex, in your travels, what, if we ask you for a thing for us to feel cheerful about uh, in your uh, adventures in ed- education, uh, what, what is the one thing that makes you feel upbeat about the future?
4: The thing that makes me feel most upbeat about the future is that um, you can see it's being done at the level of whole countries that we're getting these things right. I'm going to go back to Finland to finish. So there they have something like 10 applicants for every one place on a primary teacher training program. And people have started to be a bit down on the Finnish model. But education there is a joyous pursuit. So... It's still rated the happiest country in the world, according to the UN. Um, it comes top of the World Economic Forum's Human Capital Index. And it's also a hive of creativity. So you've got companies like Nokia and Angry Birds. You've got these amazing pursuits invented by Finnish teenagers, like this thing called Hobby Horsing, which is this imaginary form of show jumping where kids ride around an equestrian arena on on literally little hobby horses like you would have when you are a child. Um, and then it's also the country with the h- highest proportion of heavy metal bands per population of any country in the world. And the teacher, Pekka Peora, who I went to see there, um, is so on top of things at school that he has time
1: to be a drummer in a heavy metal wow. band.
3: Oh, shame it's heavy metal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> They're also, I think, the Finns lead the world in air guitar as well. Oh, yes, that's the annual (laughs) (laughs) competition. And the reason we should be cheerful is I think we can achieve
4: that. I think that we can learn to love our teachers here in the same way that they do in Finland. Mm. Alex Beard, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.